Now, last week, uh, you, if you were here, um, you might remember that we talked about the fall. All right, as we've been going through Genesis, we're looking at all these beginnings. We looked at the beginning of creation. We looked at the beginning of humanity. We looked at the beginning last week of sin, the first sin in the world entering into the planet and the fall and what happened there. And what we saw in that story was Eve and then Adam ultimately rejected the plan of God and ate the fruit that they were told not to eat. All right? And as we looked at that, we saw that they were deceived and lied to by the devil. But temptation didn't force them to sin. They willingly chose it. Right? They were tempted to do this. The, the, the lie popped up. The, the deceit kind of came through and did its work. Eve began to question the goodness of God. And in it, they chose to sin. And for the very first time, last week we saw they experienced sin, they experienced fear, and they experienced shame. Three things they had never experienced before in the perfect garden and the perfect creation. And what did that do when they experienced those things? It caused them to want to hide when God showed up for a visit walking through the garden. And they hid themselves from him. And the sin and the experience of that radically transformed Adam and Eve. As God told them before, when he said, there's this tree in the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, don't eat of this tree or else you're surely going to die. When, when that took place um, and they, they still did it, it changed who they were. It changed them. And one of the most important discoveries that, that we make about ourselves is that we, as ancestors of Adam and Eve, have inherited a sin nature. You might not know this, but you were a born sinner, okay? Every one of us, every human being, our natural desires are bent towards ourselves. That's just who we are as people. We want to preserve ourselves. We want to provide for ourselves. We want to save ourselves. We want what we want when we want it because that's who we are as, as people, and, and no one has to learn how to sin. It's instinct. Now, I've told this story before, but it's been a few years, so maybe you forgot, and maybe for some of you, you've never heard it anyway, so I'm gonna tell it again. When I was little, I mean little, little, like probably about three years old, living up in Central California, um, little toddler guy cruising around, my mom and I um, went to the grocery store, you know, typical little mother-son outing, went to the grocery store. We're going through doing our grocery shopping or whatever until we came to the Isle of Temptation, okay? Now, if you may not know what the Isle of Temptation, it might be the ice cream aisle for you now in the grocery store, but for a three-year-old me, the Isle of Temptation was this aisle where they, for some unknown reason, decided to put the hard candy, unwrapped hard candy at about ankle height. You know, the bottom little things where those big bins are, where you're supposed to put them in a bag and then weigh it out and buy candy by, by weight. I don't know. They might still do that in some grocery stores. But as a three-year-old cruising through, my mom walking with her cart, doing what she's doing, and I'm wandering around, it's eye level for the three-year-old me. And when I came through this aisle of temptation with my mom, what I did was reached my little grubby hand into the, the, the hard candy grabbed myself a handful and stuffed them in my pocket. Three-year-old me and just kept on going. All right? 
we go through, finish our shopping, we go through the checkout, it's all good, coast is almost clear, we make it back into the car, my mom loads up the groceries, loads me up in the back seat, we start heading home. Well, as my mom's driving home, all of a sudden she hears that candy wrapper sound, and here's me in the back seat, you know, shoving these candies in my mouth, and she's like, Brett, where did you get that candy? At that point, I'm just like, uh, you know, don't know what to say. Okay, well, we're going to talk to your dad about it when we get home. So we come home, and, and I'm like, you know, in fear um, of my dad, and we have this conversation. And what ultimately happens in this story, if you remember, is my dad, first off, we take a trip into my bedroom to raid my piggy bank for my money put that in my pocket, take the remaining candies that are there. My dad loads me back up. We go back to the grocery store and have to go meet the manager. And I have to apologize to the manager. I have to return the uneaten candy to the manager and pay for all the candy that I stole. All right? Now, why do I bring this up? Because three-year-old Brett did not learn how to shoplift from somebody else. Three-year-old Brett knew, I want that candy. And I can figure out a way to get it. And so I'm going to take it. And the sin that we see in Genesis 3, just like every sin, came with consequences. That's what sin does in our lives. We might think we get away with something, and I could have if I had just waited a little longer. Now, I will say, um, maybe that's what broke me of my lifetime of crime. I haven't been a shoplifter since, thankfully. (laughs) Maybe that's what I needed. I don't know. But sin always comes with consequences, all right? And today, as we look here at this last section of Genesis 3, the consequences are what we're going to study today. And and if you remember at the end of our story last time, what happened was Adam and Eve, they hide themselves in the garden. God comes in for a visit. He begins walking through the garden and calling them, and they're hiding. And so when he finally gets to Adam, he's like, Adam, why were you hiding? And Adam says, uh, you know, I sinned, I heard you were there, and I went and, hide, I wanted, and I wanted to hide. And so God says to him, what have you done? And he says, well, he starts the blame game. Eve, that woman you gave me, she offered me the fruit, and then he comes clean. I ate. I did it. And so then he goes to Eve and says, Eve, is this true? Is this what happened? And she goes through the link. Well, the serpent, it wasn't, it it was the serpent that did it, deceived me. And I ate, she confesses. All right, and so where we pick up here in verse uh, 14 is he begins walking back down that whole um, trail of blame, all right? And in verse 14, here's what happens. It says, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Okay, let's let's take a look at this here. What we find in these couple of verses is the curse on the snake. All right, the snake. And the snake itself would be cursed for all of history as the vilest of all animals for the part that it played in this story. It's often symbolizing evil and darkness, all right? Um, Something sinister and dangerous. Now, for some of you, you might be like 
reptile people and you think of snakes and you're like, oh, rosy boas and all these cool pythons and snakes. For most human beings on planet Earth, when they think of a snake, they're like, ugh, a snake. I don't want anything to do with a snake. All right? For me, the, the only other animal that comes close is, to me, it's a shark. Thinking of something deadly and dangerous, <laughs> you know, um, that's how I view it, right? But this, this whole idea of dwelling in the dust is a depiction of just being the lowest of the low. What God is saying is you as an animal are always going to be viewed as the lowest of the low. Now, the snake has even come to represent sin itself. All right, and in scripture, that's what we see. And it starts right here in Genesis chapter three, right? The first couple pages of the whole book. And throughout the rest of scripture, you see these other little bits uh, these little stories that, that snakes are to represent evil. And the reason that I bring that up to you is because it, it has a really important part to play all the way into the Gospels. Now, the next big place that we see something, uh, we're going to take a little side trip here about snakes. Um, the next big place that we see this is in Numbers 21. And in, in the book of Numbers, this is after Moses and the Israelites have come out of Egypt and they're wandering in the desert. Okay, And in Numbers 21, we have this really bizarre story. Here's what it says, Numbers 21, 4 to 9. It says, From Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water. We loathe this worthless food. And get this, verse 6, Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Now that is a weird story. And the thing about it is, even when you're reading in Numbers, it's not like we just pulled this out of context, guys. That's how the whole story starts and ends. You're reading along in Numbers, they're traveling around, they're getting this manna from heaven. I mean, it shows up at their door, it's DoorDash right there outside of the door of the tent. And they get tired of it because they're eating it all the time. So they're like, we're sick of this manna that gets delivered at our doorstep. Are you kidding me? It's perfect for me, right? But that's going on and they're like, we're tired of this. And so they sin against God and against Moses and they start talking trash. And so God then does this weird thing, sends these serpents, and then to make it even stranger, he says, yeah, make this bronze serpent, put it on a pole, stick it up in the air, and anybody who gets bit by these, if they just look up at the serpent, they're going to be okay. And then the story ends. And you're reading through that, and you're like, what in the world's going on? It doesn't make sense until you keep reading all the way through the Bible, and you find out that Jesus will actually um, refer to this and make sense of it all. In fact, even at the time when this happened in Numbers, I'm sure that event took place historically, and when it was over, they're like, that was weird. <laughs> we don't know what was going on. 
But when Jesus appears, he uses it to describe his work on the cross. Serpents representing sin. Here's what Jesus says in John 3, 14 to 15. He's talking to a man named Nicodemus. And he says this, he says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, that very story that we referred to, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. The serpent represented sin. The people's sin bit them, <laughs> literally. But Jesus becomes sin for us. It tells us that specifically in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. It says, for our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So just as the Israelites were to look up in faith at the snake for their salvation, we're called, Jesus says, it, this is the same thing. We're called to look up in faith to Jesus, who is carrying the sins of the world, representing sin for us, for our salvation. Isn't that crazy? You can't make this stuff up. <laughs> Numbers, understand this. Numbers, where we read that weird snake story, was written over a thousand years before Jesus showed up on the scene. It's not like they added that in later to say, hey, let's try to make sense of this. No, a thousand years later. Even though sin had entered the world, God already had a plan to remove it. And that's important for us to see here in this Genesis chapter 3. Now, it doesn't fit with our timeline, but with each of the consequences of sin, we will see that our good God will be at work unraveling those consequences and restoring us. It's as Jesus said in Luke 12, 32, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. All right, so the snake is cursed in that way and ultimately gonna be a, a symbol of sin, but then also a he's going to turn that all around with Jesus. But then we get to verse 16, to Eve. And here's what he says now to Eve. So remember, Adam blames Eve, Eve blames the snake. And so now he says, all right, we're gonna deal with the snake. Now we're gonna deal with Eve. And then we're gonna deal with Adam. All right, and so with Eve, it says there in verse 16, to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. Okay, now, in Genesis already, we have learned that men and women were both equally created in the image of God. Equally created in the image of God, yet with distinct differences between them. And they were to be, Adam and Eve, were to be as one flesh, united in marriage, and united in caring for and overseeing the created world. However, they were also given different bodies, different bodies crafted for different functions, all right? And the female body is specifically created, uniquely created, for childbirth. It's one of the unique aspects of the female body. And having children, notice this, moms, it might feel like having children is a curse sometimes. Maybe, no, it's just for dads, All right? right? But it's not. Having children was not part of the curse. Having children was before the fall. 
having children was supposed to be one of the most unique, beautiful, incredible joys of a woman's life. Motherhood was a, a miraculous honor reserved for women. And it's in that unique place that the consequence is focused. God says here to Eve, he says, look, this thing that I gave you uniquely and incredibly that was meant to be a source of perfect joy, that's where the pain's going to hit here. All right? What once may have been pure joy is now tainted by pain. And not only that, it also seems that the curse would extend into her most important personal relationship with her husband. That's what it says in that second, second section. Instead of being the perfect match, as we talked about them um, a few weeks ago, now there will be conflict and a brokenness in the pattern. I do want to say this about this verse um, there in verse 16. It's, it's kind of a hard verse to process. Some translations, and if you're reading a different Bible translation, English translation here today, it might actually say, your desire shall be for your husband, okay? Um, but that doesn't really convey the meaning here. There's a little bit of aggression in this for. So you can still translate it as, yeah, there's, your desire will be for your husband, but it's more like you're wanting to like pounce on him kind of a thing. It's that sort of, it's for. Contrary, the ESV does a good job here um, tr translating it as it's contrary to. Um, meaning, there's going to be times where you're going to want one thing and he's going to want another. She's going to want to rule over him or be at odds with him. And it's clarified more with the next phrase, which says, he shall rule over you. It says there's going to be this brokenness, this friction that is naturally going to happen in this relationship. This re perfect relationship before where everything is harmonious and beautiful and wonderful. It's the, the marriage that you thought was going, you're going to have on your wedding day when everything is just, ah, oh, this will be perfect, right? That was what it was supposed to be like, but that's not what's going to take place. And now, without going into a, a full message on what the Bible teaches about husband and wife relationships, there are a couple of possible kind of interpretations here. And I do want you to remember this is a direct result of sin. This isn't how it was supposed to be. We were supposed to get along. We can still aim for those things. We were supposed to love each other perfectly. All right? That's what we're aiming towards. But this brokenness has now entered into the relationship. So either when it says there, he shall rule over you, either this is referring to his brokenness of then wanting to lord over his wife, because by the way, that's not God's intent. That's not how it's supposed to be. <laughs> um, Maybe that's what's going on. Um, or um, it might be her brokenness of wanting to usurp his authority and take control. Or a bit of both. And that happens too. But now that perfect relationship would become strained. Marriage isn't easy. It's, it's not. It's, it's meant to be the closest relationship we will ever have, but it's also the hardest. And as Christians who know what God's intention was for marriage, we do our best to sacrificially try to love our spouses. And the best advice I can give you, if you ever ask me for marriage advice, the advice I'm always going to give you is this. Try to put Christ at the center of your relationship. Try to always put God there, between you and your partner. 
In the same way that, that Jesus is an advocate between us and the Father, it actually is pretty amazing when Jesus is the advocate between us and our partner. All right? And that doesn't matter what sort of relationship you're in. You both might be Christians. Both of you put Jesus between the two of you. It might be you may be a Christian and your spouse, spouse is not. Still, put Jesus in between that relationship. He can help us learn to love one another. That's the best advice I can give you on that. All right, and so this is where the woman sees this consequence of sin. Now your, your childbirth is gonna have multiplied pain and there's gonna be brokenness in your relationship with your husband. And now for Adam, verses 17 to 19, and here's what it says there. It says, and to Adam... He said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Adam would also suffer with the brokenness of relationship with his wife, right? That was a shared curse, so to speak. But beyond that, he was supposed to have a, a special relationship with the earth itself. When back earlier in Genesis... We learned that he was to have dominion over the animals in chapter 1, verse 28. And he was also supposed to work and to keep the garden, tells us that in 2.15. But earth itself would be cursed because of human sin. All right, what was supposed to happen was, yes, he was supposed to work and produce and do all this. But the difference was, before the fall, earth would have been cr creatively um, uh, working with him to bring forth what needed to be brought forth. Now what God says is, it's not going to be so easy anymore. What used to just spring up out of the ground, now it's going to be coming up with weeds and thistles, and it's going to, yeah, you're still going to eat bread, you're still going to eat off of the land, but you're going to have to work for it. You're going to struggle with it. And just as the female body had a unique purpose, the male body was built for heavy lifting. <laughs> All right, This can be your verse for you bodybuilders are among us. Obviously not me. We were meant to be productive in this life. We were meant to work and to bring um, something out of this. Women would continue to be the ones to bring children into the world, but now with multiplied pain, and men would continue to work and tend to creation, but now with multiplied effort and struggle. And just like the last half of Eve's curse was shared with Adam, the last half of Adam's curse was shared with Eve. He says there, to dust you shall return. Now this is important for us to, to get and to know because it helps shape how we view God. Death was not the perfect plan for creation. Death doesn't belong here. When God gave the command to them not to eat from the tree of knowledge, he told them clearly that if they did so, that they would surely die. Now, it wasn't immediate death, 
right? It wasn't that, oh, this fruit is poisonous, and as soon as you pop it in your mouth, you're flat. That's not what he was saying. But it was the poison of sin that would change everything, that would have all this curse. Sin, as we know in Scripture, as we learn through it, sin always leads to death. I tell you guys that almost every week, right? Sin leads to death. But even at this point in the curse, even at this point, we see God's provision. All right? In 1 Corinthians 15, 21 to 26, Paul describes this. Here's what he says. He says, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead, life. For as in Adam all die, he's referring to this very verse that we just looked at, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits, then at his coming, all those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And listen, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. God views death as an enemy to his creation. Death was not the plan from the beginning. And as we go on here in verses 20. To 21, we see more of God's provision, even in the middle of the consequences here. Look what it says. It says in verse 20, Then the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. The death sentence that they received wasn't immediate. And I think that's part of why Adam and Eve were hiding. I I told you last week, they learned a few key things that you wish they never had to learn. But they learned about sin, they learned about fear, and they learned about shame. What were they afraid of? They were afraid of what God was going to do when he turned back up in the garden. God had told them very clearly, if you eat of this tree, you will die. They've eaten of the tree, and so now they are waiting the sentence. They're waiting their death sentence. They're waiting to see what are the consequences going to be. How is this going to impact us? So of course they were hiding when God shows up, right? Walking through the garden. They're scared. They don't know what's going to happen. But instead, what we see here is God gives them hope. Because even as he starts describing this curse, I mean, think about it, for Eve. I mean, they hear what he has to say to the snake, and they're like, okay, that doesn't sound good. He starts talking to Eve and says, well, you know, in childbirth... Now there's going to be pain. Wait a minute. You mean I'm going to live long enough to experience the pain of childbirth? Okay. Well, maybe something's, maybe there's some hope here. He goes on with Adam. And as he's talking to Adam and he says, all right, now you're still going to eat bread. I'm going to live long enough to eat some bread. Okay. There's some amount of hope. I'm not going to die immediately today. We kind of thought, God, that you were going to walk in here, introduce us to our replacements, and then lightning from heaven, boom, strike, we're gone. But that's not what's happening. God gives them hope. Uh, and, and Adam and Eve realize that they would have a future, even though they now know it's going to be limited. And I think that's actually part of what inspired Adam to even name Eve, Eve. In Hebrew, Eve sounds like life giver. 
or the living. Um, now, you might say, well, which came first? Did the Hebrew word sound like Eve because Eve was the life giver or did Eve get named because there was a word? I don't know. It's the chicken and the egg kind of question here. All we know is that that's an interesting little tidbit there, that Eve sounds like life giver in Hebrew. But they had a hope now for a future, hope for children, hope for life, and hope for a future. And also notice here in the provision of God that God also provided them with clothing that they would need now that the world had changed. You might remember what we saw last week is once they realized that they were naked and exposed, they thought, okay, we got to do something about this. We got to cover ourselves up. And what do they do? They go find fig leaves, <laughs> right? They, they sew some leaves together. And God already is like, all right, that's not going to last, this fig leaf fabric thing that you're trying to pull off. <laughs> so instead, what he does is he, again, provides for their needs, and he provides skins from animals for them and, and clothing. Now, here's the thing about that. This, too, this provision of God in providing these animal skins would foreshadow what lengths God would go to to save humanity. Because here's what we see here. An animal was sacrificed for Adam and Eve. Something now in this creation had to be killed, sacrificed in an untimely moment to provide for Adam and Eve. It was a substitute for them. And later, the sacrificial system, when you get into Leviticus and all that goes on there, when God set up all of the religious rituals and rules for his people, especially for us as modern people, we're like, what was the deal with all the animal sacrifice stuff? Why is it every time that you sinned, you had to go kill something? It just seems barbaric and strange. The point that is, is being given and carried across here is, God is saying, look, sin leads to death. And there's something to this. And every sin is going to be atoned for by blood, by death. A life was required for a life. And the life of an animal was given to cover their sin. Jesus would ultimately offer his life so that we might have life in him. His one perfect sacrifice was the sacrifice then that would cover all the rest of the sins. That's why we still don't, we don't do animal sacrifice here. Anybody's wondering? <laughs> we don't. We don't need to. Jesus was sacrificed once for all for us. It was his atonement for us. And then the last couple of verses here, verses 22 to 24. It says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowledge in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Remember this in creation. There were two different trees that were special trees in the garden. Two unique trees that weren't anywhere else. One was the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which they were to not eat from. 
The other one was the tree of life. All right, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil was the only one in the garden where he said, do not eat of this tree. They did anyway. But now what's happening is God saying, okay, we need to deal now with the tree of life. We have to, to sort through this. Now, this is the final piece of the fall here, this ejection from the garden. No longer would they be allowed to inhabit the perfect paradise that God had created for them. It was no longer for them. The entrance would be blocked by an angel. That's what a cherub is, an angel with a sword. And also the privilege of eating from the tree of life would be revoked. Because I think that beforehand, they could have eaten from this tree. All right, They had access to that tree. There's nowhere in scripture that tells us that they couldn't eat of the tree of life before sin. But now that was going to be revoked. And, and here's one more final thought here as we start wrapping this up. And I think that it's important for understanding this part of the story very well. We might, rightly so, view death as part of the punishment for humanity's sin. All right? Death was part of the punishment. It was part of the curse. But also recognize the mercy of God in it. Okay? And theologically, this is important because it sets the trajectory of our view of God. How we view God uh, is shaped by this right here. For some, this is a perspective of God who punishes excessively. All right, when you talk to different people about God, especially people that, that maybe don't follow the Lord, aren't, aren't Christians, um, but everybody's got a view of God. If you haven't noticed this yet, even people that are not religious don't go to church, don't even have a background. Most people actually believe in some sort of God, some sort of higher power. There are very few people that have actually come to the place where they're like, there, there cannot be a God. And, and practically, um, they live as if there might be something out there, even if there's no real life change involved, right? And so for some people, they want to point, they look at this and they point blame at God and say, see, God set him up. God didn't care anything about him anyway. Why did God even put that tree in the garden? He just put it in the garden so he could bust them. God is in heaven just loving, just raining down wrath on all these people. And God is this God of hatred toward his creation. But here's the question. When we look at this and we see this, we have to ask the question, well, why would God not want them to live forever? Why would that be part of the curse? Why would he allow death to enter the world? Is this proof that God was violently angry with people? I don't think so. What I learn about God through scripture is that God loves us and he is good. I told you that a few weeks ago, right? One of the key attributes of God, it's the key attribute that the devil tried to used for deception was the fact that God is good. Baseline, foundational, God is good. And if God is good, all these other things about this, this, this hate-filled God trying to set people up and destroy people doesn't seem to jive. And it doesn't. If God is good and God loves us, here's, I think, why he drove out people from the garden. Why he told them they could no longer eat of the tree of life. God doesn't want us to live forever in brokenness. 
if he allowed Adam and Eve to continue to eat the tree of life, and let's just say the tree of life gave people eternal life. As long as you ate from it, you just kept on living. What would that mean? That would mean Adam and Eve would still be alive here somewhere on this planet hundreds and then thousands of years of living in brokenness. That's not God's intention for humanity. It's not his goal for creation. The eternal life that God is preparing for us is not like the fallen life that we experience on this earth. He wants us to experience eternal life, but eternal life without sin. That's why they were pushed out of the garden. That's why they were pushed away from that tree. I mean, I know that for a lot of people, we, we want to extend our lives. You know, there's all sorts of people. Right over here, there's this uh, company that I drive by that I'm always really interested. It seems like a weird kind of cult to me. Uh, and it's all about longevity. Uh, that might give you a clue to the name of this place. But I'm like, what is it they're studying here? There's lots of people, right? They're trying to uh, come up with a skin cream that makes your skin stay younger, longer. All these exercise routines of, hey, this will add five years to your life. We're trying to figure out, oh, how do we need to eat this and don't eat that? And how can we extend our life, extend our life, extend our life, right? We want to live long. But the, the long life, the eternal life that God has for us is not a life that deals with a lot of the things we're trying to overcome. We want to erase disease and illness from, from people, right? Of course we do. We want to have a good long life as long as we can. But what about a life that's absolutely perfect? Where there is no more sorrow and there is no more pain and there is no more sadness and sickness and disease. That sounds better, doesn't it? That's where we want to live. That's where God wants us to live. That's what is, is going on here to experience eternal life with no sin and no destruction that comes from sin. So as we reflect on this story, as I finish here today, I want to encourage you to do what I did this week, is to ask yourself, what have been the consequences of your own sins? Adam and Eve would have spent the rest of their lives probably asking the question, what if? What if we hadn't eaten that fruit? What would it have been like? Hey, do you remember that waterfall in the garden? Wow, that would have been nice to have kept living there. What if we hadn't done this? What if? What if? Ah, uh, the regret. But I want to encourage you to still think about the consequences of your own sins. Maybe take some quiet time this week to consider this. And I do know that for many of us, when we go back there and we think about that, as I'm thinking about three-year-old Brett, reaching his hand into the basket for the candy, you know. As we think about that, it might stir up some sorrow. There might be some grief or some shame. Maybe it's time for some confession before God and repentance before God. Spend a little bit of time there. But then move from there beyond that and consider the grace and goodness of God to forgive those sins. Because of all the worst things you've done ever in your whole life, God wants to forgive you from those sins and wipe those things out. And it's not something that's just hidden back in a corner somewhere, stuffed in some back pocket. It's not that. God says, no, what I want to do is I want to truly forgive those sins. And that's what he did with Jesus, through Jesus 
God works to reverse the curse. His will is that we would be restored to right relationship with him. And one day, the tree of life will be offered again to humanity. And my prayer is that that view of him would fill our hearts with gratitude and love for our Savior. Amen? Let's pray together here. Father, I thank you for your word today. And Lord, I thank you for your love for us. I thank you for your mercy in our lives. We know that we are frail and fragile and that we are fallen. We know that we are sinners by nature, God. But we are so grateful that even in our sin, even in our brokenness, even in our lostness, you sent your son. As your word tells us, that he came to die for us while we were still in our sins. And God, I am so grateful that you want to deal with the sins in our lives. You don't want us to just have to carry them and battle them and, and hold on to the regret and the sorrow and the grief. Instead, Lord, you want to free us. You came that we would have life and that we would have freedom. And so, Lord, I pray that today you would bring that freedom and that life to every single person that's here. I pray if there are any here today that are buried in their sins, that today, Lord, that they could come to you, that they could look to you on that cross, and that they could confess their sins to you and put their faith and trust in you to free them from what they're enslaved by. I pray, God, that you would bring us freedom and deliverance, wholeness and health. Lord, I pray for the relationships in this church, the marriages, the sibling relationships, the friendships. God, I pray that you build them. I pray that you would remove any brokenness that might be there, Lord, and allow us to continue to learn to grow, as we say, as a part of the mission of our church, Lord, to learn to love one another as we love you and follow after you. And today, Lord, I pray that if anyone who's here today is, is struggling with some of those things and wrestling through those things, maybe there's some deep stuff that you want to bring to the surface so that you can pull it out of their hearts. Lord, I pray that they'd have the courage to do that today, that they'd look at their own lives, they'd look at their own hearts, and they'd look for those places that you would reveal to them of where there's brokenness, where there's darkness, where there's sin that needs to be dealt with. And Lord, that they would deal with it today. I pray, God, that every person that walks out of these doors would be able to walk out with freedom in their hearts, freedom in their souls, that they'd be changed and transformed, they'd be healed and renewed as only you can do. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.